Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Uh, my name is Shani Orgad, and I'm an associate professor here at the LSE at the Department of Media and Communications. And I'm very pleased to welcome uh, tonight Virginia Postrel um, for her talk. Um, as many of you might know, um, Virginia is a Los Angeles-based author and a columnist whose work really spans uh, a very broad range of topics enviably <laughs> broad, from social science to fashion, um, and she very much concentrates on the intersection between commerce and culture, broadly speaking. And this evening, Virginia will draw on her new uh, book. May I probably just yes. show it? May I say glamorous book? Um, entitled The Power of Glamour, Longing and the Art of Visual Persuasion. Uh, in which uh, Virginia examines the mysterious and pervasive phenomenon and identifies uh, kind of three essential elements of glamour, which I'm sure well, she'll speak about, and explaining how glamour works, I a question that we're probably all quite curious about. So um, this is all for me. For those who are on Twitter, um, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Glamour. So please go on there and tweet. <laughs> and I'd ask you please to uh, put your phones on silence so that uh, not to disrupt the event. Uh, this evening's uh, event is being recorded and LSE's, um, LSE tries, uh, we, we try as soon as possible to upload it for those who may have missed it or might want to um, watch uh, it again. Um, and as usual, after the lecture, so Virginia will speak for around 45 minutes, so we have proper time for Q&A and discussion. We'll open the floor um, for discussions afterwards. Um, unfortunately, despite its global age, the uh, uh, delivery of the books hasn't happened. Um, but Virginia does have uh, a couple of copies for those of you who might be interested to purchase it after the event um, and to have her signing the books. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming uh, Virginia to LSE to deliver her lecture. Thank, thank you very much, and thank all of you for coming out. It's really a great pleasure and honor to, to be at the LSE. Uh, to talk about something that, you know, serious social scientists think has nothing to do with that, uh, but in fact I think it has to do with all of us, uh, which is the subject of glamour. So, um, uh-oh, already we have a problem. It's not the right If Okay, we do it the old-fashioned way, <laughs> semi-old-fashioned. So this is my book, as you saw the little one. Uh, do you have the remote? <laughs> we had two remotes that look exactly the same, and, and they kind of... Okay. Um, maybe they got mixed up. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, so the first question when you set off to write about glamour is, what the hell is it? Uh, what is glamour? A lot, when people see a book like this, um, they often assume that it's a book about fashion. And there is fashion in it. Um, or that maybe it's about celebrity or luxury. Those are three kind of things that people often think are the same as glamour, or a particular style, mirrored furniture or beaded dresses. 
uh, lots of uh, lots of glitz. And all of these things can be glamorous. But when we start to think about what glamour is, it actually makes sense to start with that word, the word glamorous. And I have this blog called This is Glamorous. And when you start to think about things that are glamorous, whether to you or in history or you know, to other people, you start to realize that even within a certain category like glamorous cities or glamorous individuals, that there's a tremendous amount of variety. You know, Paris is glamorous, Shanghai is glamorous, uh, Venice is glamorous, uh, uh, a a beautiful beach in the middle of the winter, uh, you know, show you a picture of vacation, that can be glamorous. Many different things. And these things, when you think about them, they're very different. Um, you know, what, how is the New York skyline like a picture of the Venice canals, much less like, you know, a, a glamorous individual or a glamorous car? So what is, what do we mean when we say something is glamorous? What is going on? What is glamour? So the, the definition or a definition or a piece of the definition that I came up with is glamour is a form of nonverbal persuasion. And the, the, my aha moment when I was trying to figure out what glamour was, what glamour is, was to think, oh, glamour is like humor, not just in spelling, although in America we spell them differently, uh, but in what kind of thing it is. You have an audience and you have an object. It could be a person, a place, a, a thing. Um, And the way you tell, how do you tell if something is funny? Do you write down a definition of what is funny? I mean, people have tried to understand humor, you know, the psychology of it. No, you can tell something is funny because the audience has a particular emotional response to that communication, that form of communication. Uh, They're amused, they laugh. The same is true of glamour. How do we tell that something is glamorous? It's not because it has sparkles on it. It might be, that might be glamorous to some people, but it might not be glamorous to somebody else. The way we tell something is glamorous is because it creates a certain emotional response, a feeling of projection and longing. If only life could be like that, if only I could be there, if only I could be like that or be with that person or belong to that group or have that job or live in that place, you know, wouldn't that be great? And so we, it's this feeling of projection and longing. So this is a picture that's in my book uh, that is, it's not a glamorous picture. It's a picture of glamour. The little girl is, has the movie star magazine in her lap. This is, I believe, from the four, it was uh, an illustration in the, from the 40s. Um, and she has the movie star magazine, and she's looking in the mirror. Oh, wouldn't I... You know, I want to be like that, or, or maybe I want to be like that when I grow up. And it's this kind of yearning. There's this yearning feeling with glamour. And, of course, movie star glamour is one of the kinds of glamour that we immediately think of when we hear the word. But here's another picture with a, 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 also with a child, the little boy looking at the rocket. And, you know, I was born in 1960, 
And when I was a kid, there was nothing more glamorous, in, at least in America, than the space program. And I remember if, if people ask me, you know, well, what is your earliest memory of glamour? And they expect me to talk about, you know, my mother being dressed up to go to a party or something. And I say, no, my earliest memory of glamour, aside from The Wizard of Oz, is this book I used to read every day in kindergarten called You Will Go to the Moon. Because there was this feeling that, you know, there was that same kind of yearning. And this is why, by the way, we have three billionaires with their own space programs. Because they were that little boy at some point, and then they became billionaires, and hey, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it myself. I'll make it come true. So there's this feeling of if only. And it, it speaks to very deep Longings in us that are not entirely rational. We think things like, you know, in the commercial sense, buy me, lady, said the dress. There's actually a British version of this that says the frock. Uh, and I will make you into a beautiful and whole and complete human being. Do not be silly, said the man, for a dress cannot, alone cannot do that. True, said the lady. I will have the shoes and the bag as well. And that's glamour. And aren't women stupid? Because we see dresses and shoes and we think, oh, my life could be perfect. But, you know, no man would ever buy a pair of shoes because of glamour. <laughs> and I see that, that, that Phil Knight is just stepping down as the chairman of Nike. So this is appropriate, you know. But there, there's this notion. And, and, and it's, it's like a stage magic trick. We know it's not true. But we enjoy the feeling, uh, you know, we know it's not true in all its particularities, which I'll discuss in a moment. So, the, so in addition to the kinds of things like Hollywood glamour that we think of traditionally, there are certain areas, in, particularly in commerce, where people try to manufacture glamour. So like humor, sometimes glamour is spontaneous and sometimes people are actively trying to construct it. And one of the ways that people really try to manufacture is everything around houses. Whether there's real, selling real estate or furniture or in this case, bed linens. You know, do you really, you know, why would you put one, two, three, four, five, six pillows on your bed? You know, what is that about? That's completely impractical, but it creates this, and, and probably you wouldn't do this, but when they're trying to sell you the linens, they show you this because Wow, you know, that's the life, you know, and it represents something. It's not just luxury, it's something more than that. It's your ideal life, your ideal family, perhaps, particularly with glamorous kitchen photos. It's, you know, oh, I would have, you know, my friends over and I would entertain. And it's this sort of this, this fantasy about their social life. Life would be perfect if I lived in that house. This is a plug for another L.A. writer. This is a very funny book. And it's about you know, being addicted to real estate glamour. It's like she likes to go on, you know, she likes to look on the websites and see the houses and think, oh, life would be perfect if I lived in that house and take the tours. And, and this is, a, she actually tells stories about actual houses that she buys. You know, I've only ever owned one place and I've had it since, you know, 92. And, but I do this. I'm not going to buy another house unless maybe I get old and can't climb the stairs. But, but I love to do this because I am totally susceptible to real estate glamour. So this is a common area that we, we think about glamour. 
Um, an area where we don't think about it so much is in politics, and there's a good reason for that because it's actually rare in politics for reasons I'll discuss. But in 2008, I used to say Barack Obama was God's gift to my glamour project because it was hard to find, you know, sort of glamorous movie stars or whatever. But he, as in, in 2008, as a candidate, he was so glamorous. Um, not, yeah, he was young and good looking and all that, but that wasn't the source of the glamour. It was what he represented. People who were his supporters, you know, projected onto him everything they wanted in a country, everything they wanted in a president, everything they wanted in a world, you know, and, and, you know, and then there was this very glamorous iconography with the sort of part, partial, uh, you know, the 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 the, prof, the sort of ab- slightly abstracted uh, portraits, and also he had the uh, his logo was a road stretching into the horizon, which is a classically glamorous thing. Now, when you're running for president, and if you're one of those rare presidents or, or you know a candidate who is glamorous. It's, you know, it's an asset because you can get a lot of people to support you. However, um, it's, it's tricky if you actually get elected um, because people projected onto you contradictory things. Impossible things, uh, you know, unrealistic things. I mean, this is, you know, and so it can be difficult to gl- to to govern. Um, and well, the reason that, in, at least in democracies, glamorous politicians are rare um, is is that glamour requires mystery, as I'll talk about. Anyway. And usually, we want to know too much about our politicians, so they can't maintain it. But my point is just that you know we see glamour in areas other than. Commerce and other than the very traditional glamorous glamour industries, and glamour takes different forms for different audiences, just as humor takes different forms for different audiences. Uh, whether those those are differences of personalities within the same culture, or whether it's different cultures or different times and places. So this is a classic 1950s picture um, that. Of, of you know a glamorous woman. This is actually the Fur Trade Association used to hire this particular photographer named Virginia Thorne, and every year, every month they would she would have these beautiful pictures in the fashion magazines in ads, but they're wonderful pictures. So you know what is this? What yearnings is this speaking to? Well, of course, this is a very expensive fur coat, and I don't know. She's also got on. Presumably, very expensive diamond bracelet or a rhinestone bracelet is supposed to look like an expensive diamond bracelet. So, what does that mean? Well, she's you know she's got money, but of course, it's not really her money because it's her husband's money, and he or a, you know a man gave her that coat. Well, he must really love her. So he's doing very well, and he really loves her. Either that, or he's guilty. But we, that's we won't go there. Um, so these are sort of. Particularly, you know, if, if you want to think about American culture in the 1950s, and not just American, but uh, but this was an American picture, uh, those were, you know, the classic things that people wanted. They wanted to be, they coming out of the Great Depression, they wanted money. They wanted to be financially secure. So something that represented wealth 
was glamorous, not only to you know somebody who might actually buy this, but to somebody who was just enjoying flipping through the magazine. And they wanted love. We want love today too, uh, and and sort of a, a you know a traditional couple, and that, so represented that. So this was sort of glamorous, feminine indulgence. Nineteen, I forget the date, but say like nineteen fifty-five. Now today, less expensively, but glamorous feminine indulgence often looks like this. You see these pictures of hot stone massages. Every resort has to have a picture. I walk down the street in London. I see come to our spa look. Actually, this whole woman that had really a lot of stones on it today. Her whole back was covered with stones. Now, what is this about? Well, she probably bought it for herself. She's probably got you know her own own money. Um, but this is this is about a different kind of escape. This is not about escaping poverty and hardship. Although I'm sure there are many poor, hardworking women who would really enjoy it. But that's not who this is aimed at. This is aimed at the kind of person who is. She's financially fine, but she feels very stressed because she's got so many demands on her time, and you know, and maybe it's family, maybe it's work, maybe it's just you know her email keeps coming in, and you know, whoa, this is this is how we are today, you know, and and so today our glamour, you know, at least among the affluent, and that's one thing we have to think about is different audiences, uh, is very much about escaped tranquility. It's about, you know, this moment of, of just relaxing. It's just you and, you, you know, somebody's taking care of you and it's pleasurable. But it, it's this sort of tranquil moment. Very different notions of glamour. And, and, but, but that same feeling that it's trying to evoke in, you know, projection and longing. So the title of my book is The Power of Glamour. What do we mean by the power of glamour? And this uh, uh, young woman is the... It, sort of the lead, the, the opening of the book. Her name is Michaela de Prince, and she's today a ballerina with the, the Dutch National Ballet Company, which I, as I was walking here, I see they're going to be here in a few days. Um, but she, and, and she's an American, uh, but she was not born in America, and she certainly was not born a ballerina. And when she was Four years old, she was living under unimaginably difficult circumstances. She was uh, living in an orphanage in a refugee camp in Sierra Leone. Her, uh, her father had been murdered during the Civil War. Her mother had died of starvation. So it was really a horrible, horrible situation. And as if that weren't bad enough... Of all the orphans in the orphanage, she was treated the worst, and they would actually, like, they sort of, they actually gave them numbers from most, you know, best, most desirable, most likely to be adopted to worst, and she had the worst number, and they called her devil child, uh, because instead of having, you know, beautiful, perfect, brown, four-year-old skin, she had a skin condition where she had lots of, she has lots of white spots on her. So one day, she's in, you know, in this horrible circumstances, one day uh, a Western dance magazine from who knows where blew up against the fence at, at the uh, refugee camp, and on the cover of this magazine was this beautiful, smiling ballerina with the glittery tutu, and she just looked gorgeous. And the little girl saw it, and she just thought, oh, 
that's what I want to be, you know. And she took, she took this cover off, she ripped it off, she kept it, she kept it in her underwear because that was the, actually the only sort of private spot she had to store anything. And every night she would take it out and she would look at it and she would dream. She would dream of being like the lady in the picture. And she says, you know, this allowed me to live another day, this, this saved me. Well, she got very lucky. Uh, Not too long after this happened, an American couple came to the orphanage to adopt another little girl, and they ended up adopting them both. And she took out this picture and showed her mother, her new mother, and she didn't speak English at that point. And and as soon as she got back to New Jersey, she started taking ballet dances, uh, ballet lessons, because she wanted to be like the lady in the picture. And this... And as you can see, it all worked out. Um, she, and she was very, very driven because she said you know, she wanted to be like that lady in the picture. And this is a story that illustrates two forms of the power of glamour. One is that glamour is just, an imag- it's just pleasurable. It's, you, know, you don't have to be in miserable circumstances to enjoy it, but you know, it, can, it, it takes you out of where you are and takes you to you know, a better, different, better world. Uh, you, you have this moment of, of transport that can be very enjoyable. And the other is that it can actually motivate action. It can, you know, point you in a direction. I mean, you know, I talked about Barack Obama. It can get you to vote for, it can get you to vote for somebody. It can get you to buy a house or a pair of shoes. Um, and it's very common in directing us toward careers. So, um, you know, it, it's, and obviously, like Michaela de Prince, if you actually pursue a certain profession, you're going to have to work very hard and you're going to find out that it's not just this still picture, but it can be very powerful. So I am, I'm a journalist by trade, and I was born in 1960, as I said, and there are many journalists of roughly my age who became journalists because of Woodward and Bernstein. And not the real Woodward and Bernstein who wrote about Watergate, but as mu- or at least not entirely that, but the version played by, you know, uh, uh, Woodward was uh, Robert Redford and, and Bernstein was uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman, but in the movies. They had this idea of a glamorous vision of journalism. More recently, in the sort of 2000s, um, we saw in the United States, and I don't know, maybe it's a worldwide phenomenon, but the, the f- students flocking to become forensic scientists uh, because they are to join, you know, to go to university to study forensic science, uh, which they call the CSI effect, because people would see these these very glamorous visions of of uh, you know these forensic scientists, which was not a profession that in the past had been considered glamorous, but people were inspired by that. Um, people go into politics because they see glamorous TV shows like The West Wing. I actually looked up to see, do they have The West Wing in the UK? <laughs> and, uh, and yes, I saw they did. So, uh, you know, and, and they have this idea of this is what politics are like. And I could, you know, I could go to the LSE and study, you know, to be a policy wonk. And sometimes we have glamour that's not as specific as that. It's not necessarily about us as individuals. It's almost, it's, it's about society. 
And it's not even as it's not even as specific as you know a particular individual as a political leader. It's a vision of you know what your society could be. So in the early 20th century, there was this whole idea about modernity. What did it mean to be modern? And I discuss this in much more detail in my book than I'm going to here. But you know, what did it mean to be modern? What did it mean to be a modern woman? That was another part of it. You know, and and there were many many kinds of glamorous images that help people, you know, think about, you know, what would the world of tomorrow be like? This is the New York World's Fair in 1939. This is later. This is is a a Walt Disney, um, I don't know if it was a TV or movie, it was called Magic Highway. And it was kind of like these amazing futuristic pictures of highways that, that helped get a lot of highways built in the United States because people thought, oh, we can have this. We'll have no more traffic. You know, well, there's a lot of transportation glamour, all kinds of uh, transportation glamour. Today, especially if you don't have them, somebody, somebody reminded me the other day, wind turbines are similar. They're similar to the rocket ships in the early 60s. This represents kind of progressive future, clean, it's graceful, and you have to have them on your product. Whether you're selling Volkswagens or you're selling Aveda beauty products or, or, you know, paper pads, but most importantly, if you have a business school, you must have wind turbines on your website. So this is the... this is from the Kellogg School uh, at, uh, at Northwestern University. Uh, this is from MIT's business school, and you know, there are others. And this is Goldman Sachs. I mean, you know, nothing says you know, business school like a wind turbine. But, but, and, and why is it? I mean, it's, it's this slogan, which I don't know, it's kind of lost in the light, but you know, progress is everyone's business. This is the new sort of glamorous emblem of progress and, and technology and you know, the future. So I talk in the book about the elements of glamour. Okay, it creates this feeling of projection and longing. It makes you want to have that world. How does that work? How do you, you know, how, do, how is that created? Well, all kinds of glamour have three basic elements. And the first element is the promise of escape and transformation. A different, better self, different, better society, different, better world, in different and better circumstances. Somehow, you know, it, it, you're going to escape from the mundane or the difficult into a much better world. And this promise of escape and transformation is why we so associate glamour with travel and with fashion. Because think about it, you know, travel, you literally leave your home, you leave your daily routine, and you're going to go someplace else. And, you know, we're going to show you the picture of if you're at this, at this resort, life will be perfect. And similarly, you know, we, talk, we think about glamour and fashion. And we think about glamour and fashion. We don't think about glamour and clothes, when we think about glamour and fashion, it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not your everyday clothes. It's usually these clothes that, you know, first of all, you have to have this, like, very unusual body to wear them. And secondly, even if you have that unusual body, where do you wear a dress like that? <laughs> you know, 
most of us do not go to the Oscars or, or you know, whatever. Um, and, and so, and of course, they're very expensive also. But so, but there's this notion of, you know, the reason it, we look at something like that and think how wonderful it is is because it is different from our, our daily life. There is this promise of escape and transformation built into it. And, of course, you inhabit your clothes so that they sort of transform you. And the same thing with forms of transportation. And it, you know, it could be a car, but you know, this is a glamorous shot of an airplane. Why is it glamorous? It's not. You know, it's not because it, we see a picture like this. We don't think about literally being on an airplane as a passenger because that is not in these days a glamorous experience. First of all, it's too familiar. Secondly, there's a screaming baby. You know, there's the person in front of you who's leaning back, or the person behind you who won't let you lean back, depending on which side of that great divide you. You are on. That's you know. It's kind of holy war over that. Uh, you know. But when we see. But even though we know that it's not pleasant to be on an airplane, when we see a picture like this, we have that feeling, or many of us do, of if only. You know. Wouldn't it be great because you know you're you're leaving the everyday world behind and going someplace wonderful. And this sort of feeling of escape and transformation is often behind the use of glamour in various kinds of advertising and branding campaigns. Uh, And again, taking different forms for different audiences in different cultural contexts. So this is a very uh, famous 1950s campaign called Fire and Ice by Revlon, and this was like a 90s recreation of it. Uh, And the 90s recreation is not the interesting one. I mean, that's sort of doing a retro glamour. But the idea of the Fire and Ice campaign was this was selling nail polish and lipstick that you could buy in the drugstore. So very affordable. Um, And and so it was not about luxury. But the idea was, you know, you are an average housewife. That's what you look like, you know. But... that's that, that, but that's really just your secret identity. Your real self is you're really this hot mama, you know. You and 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 if you get this lipstick or you get this nail polish or better yet, you get the matching set, you know, you can have that feeling of fire and ice. That part of your your personality can come out. Uh, you can feel yourself transformed by that, and it was phenomenally successful. Phenomenally successful. This is a very different contemporary image of glamour uh, for a very different part of the market, first of all. This is, this is a photo that was used in a Louis Vuitton ad a few years ago. So we have Angelina Jolie sitting in a beat-up rowboat in a swamp. Now imagine that you showed this picture to that Fire and Ice housewife in 1955 or the woman who you know was flipping through Vogue and imagining herself with the fur coat. And they would go like, Say what? <laughs> you know? Okay, she's pretty, and uh, you tell me she's a famous actress. Okay, she's famous. Why is she wearing her gardening clothes? Uh, why is she in a swamp? When I see a swamp, I think of the Pacific Theater in World War II, or I think of you know malaria and mosquitoes. Uh, you know, what is the attraction here? And yet, for the audience that this ad is aimed at. And, and I personally, you know, I think mosquitoes too, but the audience that this is aimed at, the, the very affluent contemporary audience, um, what does this represent? It's back to the hot stone massages. It's, it's escape. It's escape to tranquility, but it's not just tranquility in this case. It's also nature 
the green, you know, the verdant landscape. You're out of, you know, that you're out of the buzz of technology and and the city and demands on your time. Uh, and you're in, you're in this sort of peaceful, natural environment. And then if you know her story, and and the ad was done in such a way to sort of remind you. It also reminds you that this was, you know, she adopted her son in Cambodia, and so it's associated with ideals of family as well, and fam- and, and even philanthropy. And family and philanthropy are also ideas that today are often found in, 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 a, in a glamorous way. But it doesn't show you everything. Doesn't show you those mosquitoes. Doesn't 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 show you you know the the reality of, of being a poor Cambodian who can't you know maybe that maybe you and it doesn't show you all the people who are standing basically where you guys are sitting you know outside the frame that this is not you know this gives you the fantasy that she is autonomous and. All of her life is reduced to this simple bag, and she, you know, has no need of possessions or entourage or whatever. And of course, that's not true. Uh, so there's this sort of fantasy, and this brings us to the second element of glamour. So the first element of glamour is the promise of escape and transformation. The second is grace. Um, we often hear the term effortless glamour or the idea of effortlessness associated with glamour. And uh, the, the, the term I like to introduce, and some of you may know this term, is the idea of sprezzatura. So Baldassare Castiglione wrote the Book of the Courtier in 1528. It was like how to succeed as a Renaissance courtier. And he had this idea that everyone should have, if, if you're really successful, you practice the sprezzatura, the art that conceals art. You do difficult things, but you make them look easy. You never let them see you sweat. You, you know, and people know that the things are difficult. As I say, it's sort of like glamorous magic trick. They know it's difficult, but you make it look so easy, and so they're very impressed. Glamour is an illusion. The word originally meant a literal magic spell. It was a Scottish word that was a type of magic spell. You cast a glamour on people, and they saw things that weren't there. And generally, the idea is they saw things that were better than uh, than uh, what was really there. So the illusion lies in this artificial grace. The promise of escape and transformation is not necessarily an illusion. I mean, Michaela de Prince really did become a ballerina. She really did escape from the orphanage. You know, things did go her way. There, there are people who, you know, who get inspired by Woodward and Bernstein and succeed as journalists, or people who get inspired by the West Wing and become, you know, happy policy wonks or whatever. The promise of escape and transformation is not necessarily an illusion, but the grace is an illusion. Glamour hides things. It hides difficulties. It hides cost. It hides effort. It hides anything that would break the spell because you know you want to you're going to project yourself into this ideal world, and we don't want to interfere and sort of remind you of anything that might be too annoying. Whether it's you know standing at the baggage claim on when you're going to the resort waiting for your luggage, or or whether it's in the beautiful room having the you know the lamp cord not reach the outlet uh, be there. Um, so. Things that are glamorous do, as Johnny Ives said about uh, Apple computers, solve very complicated problems without letting people know 
how complicated the problem is. There's this concealing effort. And this is what I call in the, in the book a form of theatrical grace. That is, there is a real grace in the moment. Uh, but what's concealed is how it got there. So you watch one of these classic movies from the 1930s, Fred, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Um, and within the frame of the movie, the characters just say, meet in the park. And they've never seen each other before. And all of a sudden, they're dancing this perfect routine, utter, you know, expressing that they're falling in love. And everything is, is completely effortless looking. But of course, even though that, there is a truly graceful dance going on, all the rehearsal and the you know, redoing things and the sore feet and all the years that even before that particular routine was designed... All of that is hidden, and this is this sort of hiding things behind the scenes. It's a real moment. It's it's theatrical grace. It's a kind of theatrical glamour, but you have to have some way, either in time or in space, to hide the preparation. So back in those days, for example... Uh, in, in, In the classic movies, the women wore these very sexy, very tight dresses. And this was many years before Lycra. And even though the dress the dresses were cut on the bias, which gave them a little bit of stretch, but really a dress like this, which is uh, Jean Harlow in Dinner at Eight, she could not sit down in that dress because if she sat down right up the back, you know, it would just split. So in the movie, her character is just you know super sexy in this dress. In reality, they would have these things behind the scenes called leaning boards in between takes, so that the actresses could rest and you know prepare their lines. So this is this sort of theatrical grace where there's something in in the moment but there's a lot hidden. The other kind of grace that we really think of more often in terms when we think about glamour or when we think about glamorizing something is often it's really about the image. It's about altering the image. So we think about, you know, Photoshop. We think about retouching. So this is, and we usually think about it in terms of people, but I just wanted to show you, going back to the idea about houses and glamour. So this is the before, again, selling bed linens. That's a very attractive image, and I actually was attracted to it originally because there's no lamp cord, even though there's this lamp. And, you know, in, in, in interiors photos, the lamps either run on batteries or by magic because they never have lamp cords, or very rarely, whether it's in a magazine or a catalog or an ad. But this is actually the before picture. This is the after picture, which, as you can see, they've not only gotten rid of the cord. <laughs> they've, you know, we can see there was never a cord there, but they've gotten rid of this, you know, this mess here. Uh, so this is what we think of. This is actually this could be if you looked at it too long, you would break the spell because it's disconcerting. But if you're just flipping through through an ad, you don't necessarily see it. So this is this sort of retouching. Well, we think of that as something that you know you 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 all or you take things out by making a photo, you know, by, by retouching using Photoshop. But it, there are other ways to do it as well. So this is a completely candid photo. Um, 
Uh, this is the most famous paparazzo photo never taken. It's called Windblown Jackie, Jackie Onassis crossing the street in New York uh, in the 1970s with her perfectly imperfect hair and her mysterious Mona Lisa smile. And, you know, and, and this has not been retouched. This is a candid photo, but this is what it looked like originally. Uh, and so by selecting out the distracting background, it's heightened the glamour. And I have in the book the famous photo of Che Guevara. And the same thing goes on in that photo. The original photo has another guy's profile and a palm tree. Um, so there, this, this is what I call darkroom grace. This is where you, man, the, you manipulate the image to create that sense of effortless perfection. So the first element of of glamour is the promise of escape and transformation. The second is grace. And the third is mystery. To to have glamour, you always have to have a sense of distance and mystery. Familiarity destroys glamour. It it, it reminds you of what's, what's imperfect or what's banal. And... What mystery does, it has two purposes. The first is it draws you in. Mystery is intriguing. It, it, it heightens projection. We want, you know, we, we want to know more and we fill in, you know, whatever it is with our own desires. And the other is, of course, that it hides things. If, if we don't know too much about a person, we can imagine all the good things and none of the bad things. If we don't know too much about a job, we can imagine all the great things about it and none of the boring parts, etc. Uh, so glamour is neither transparent, a word we love to talk about today, transparency, nor opaque. It's translucent. It gives us just enough information to excite our imaginations and to encourage us to project our own desires on it. And this comes up in, you know, kind of classically glamorous imagery, you know. Why are sunglasses glamorous? Well, partly it's because uh, we associate them with various glamorous figures, but it's also because they they veil the face, but they don't obs- completely obscure it. You, you know, you see partially. It makes the person more intriguing. Similarly, you know, you see lots of uh, you have. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in this picture from um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. We see Audrey Hepburn from the back. We don't see her face, so that's mysterious. And then she's looking in this open window. Where you know, which is this is another picture of it's a, this is a glamorous picture, but it's also a picture of glamour. That is, she's experiencing this. Oh, Tiffany's is you know her the character's idea of a glamorous place, and we only partially see what she sees. We don't you know we have to fill that in with our imagination. So there's this sort of mystery and distance. And one way that people often create or, or you know, deliberately or spontaneously create that kind of mystery is by displacing things in, in space. And this is the sort of idea of exoticism. Ralph Lauren created these safari collections, and he said, I never went to Africa. And if I had, I probably wouldn't have designed the things that I did. You know, he had this sort of imaginary Africa that sort of represented certain ideas of dressing and desire that he that he had and this notion of you know distance where you see something of yourself in you know another place it's not it has some elements of truth about that place this is the sort of translucence but it's not the full truth it's partly you're filling in with your imagination so we can have this distance in in space and geography 
but you can also have the distance in time. And at least, sometimes there's sort of a glamour of the past, but particularly you know, from, from the early 20th century to today, there's this notion of the future as glamorous because nobody's been there. You know, and what potential. Now, it can also be scary, but this is the, you know, the positive future. Welcome to the future. Won't it be great? Won't we imagine it? And one of the futures that I looked into when I was researching the book was I thought... Well, for its fans, Star Trek is glamorous. And this is an example of, you know, it's not glamorous to everybody, but to a particular core group of people, it's, it's, it's very glamorous. And um, some of the reasons it's glamorous are sort of obvious. It represents uh, adventure, exploration, technology. But I actually did a survey of something like 1,400 Star Trek fans, and it was very open-ended. And what I discovered was that to a lot of people, there was an element of glamour that I hadn't even considered, which was that for them, Star Trek represented the ideal workplace. They, they had this idea that you would be part of a team, you know, they had this camaraderie, and camaraderie is often... You know, there are all kinds of many forms of glamour where camaraderie is an element, but everybody has a place. You're doing interesting work, it's important. Everybody is competent. You're competent, they're competent. The boss isn't an idiot or crazy. You know, if somebody is, if somebody is you know, a problem, they get killed by the end of the show. Um, you know, it's, but people had this idea. It was sort of a, an, a meritocratic ideal where every, everybody had a place and, um, contributed and was doing important work. So the, this notion of, you know, in the future or in this imaginary future, th- there'll be this sort of ideal work. And by the way, nobody ever talks about their salary on Star Trek. You know, so <laughs> they didn't say that in the survey, but, you know, when you think about it, that's, it's one of those things that's hidden. To, you know. So, and uh, with, this is one of the very glamorous photos that I have in my book. This is a photo uh, by an architectural photographer named Julius Shulman, who created many of the images by which we know modern architecture, particularly modern domestic architecture, modern homes, particularly in Southern California. And this is an amazing picture to me because he creates mystery and glamour in a completely clear glass box. So how do you create mystery there? And what he does is he shows us these two young women, presumably you know, conversing. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they're talking about. But we think, wow, it would be great to be part of that life. And if that doesn't work enough for you, we've got the, little, the, the lights of Los Angeles below. And just like a, you know, it's, it's a similar effect as a, a skyline. Each of those little individual lights represents a potential life, you know, a potential different, better life for you in this place. And you think, wow, I would really like to, you know, I would like to live in that world. I would like to live in that city. I would like to live in that house. It's this very glamorous image and very mysterious despite having, you know, big glass walls that don't, don't officially obscure anything. So... There was a photographer, another photographer named George Harrell who photographed a lot of the movie stars in the 1930s and, and 40s, basically up until the war. And he created a lot of you know, very highly stylized, very glamorous images. And people would say to him, you know, George, how do you create glamour? And he was like, 
stop asking me that question. But, but he would say, you just bring out the best, conceal the worst, and leave something to the imagination. So the movie stars are the escape and transformation. And then you have the grace and the mystery. And voila, glamour. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for a fascinating talk um, about even a more fascinating, uh, rich book. Um, we will now open the floor for uh, questions. If I can ask people to wait until the roving microphone uh, comes to you and then just speak. And if, you can, if you're happy to say who you are and your affiliation, please do before you um, make your comments or pose your question. So, yes, please. So. Hi, I'm David Rosen. I'm a PhD student in psychology around the corner at King's. I'm interested in your, uh, the difference in the definitions between luxury, which is about yeah. scarcity and glamour, right. Right. which is the way you've described it, and, and yeah. how, you, how you think those two sort of interrelate. Yeah, so I would say that, yes, defining luxury is an interesting exercise in and of itself, and I, I've, you know... <laughs> Uh, I can't get the quote exactly right, but David Hume said, you know, something about, you know, it's, it's, oh, I can't get it right at all. But it was like, but it's it's many different definitions. Luxury is difficult to define in and of itself. But what I would say about luxury is luxury is something that is glamorous to some people. And if you think about the analogy with humor, uh, there's certain kinds of humor that travel pretty well across cultures. Certain types of slapstick humor, whereas other kinds of humor, like witty banter, you know, it's language bound and it's culturally bound. And luxury is a form of glamour that, to some degree, travels well across different audiences. But what people find luxurious is different with context. Um, and, and luxury is not glamorous to everyone. Some people are very, you know, are indifferent to luxury, or they, uh, or, and some people are actually anti-luxury. They don't, you know, they, they don't like the things that it represents in their mind. So, um, so there's, luxury is about, use of luxury is about scarcity, which is one way of thinking about it. I would say, if, if you think about glamour as expressing sort of deeper longings and, and, and sort of embodying them in some sort of image, the, the image of something luxurious often involves a sense of exclusivity, which speaks to a desire to be special. And so this underlying desire, this underlying desire to be special it's one of those things that can take many different forms depending on the individual personality. So for some people, it's, you know, they see a red carpet photo and they are somebody winning an Oscar and they think, wow, I, you know, to me that's really glamorous. I would really love that to be me because I'd be special. To others, to someone else, it might, you know, be possessing something that's very rare and only a few people can afford. Sort of an idea of luxury is representing exclusivity and specialness. But for somebody else, it might be getting into an exclusive university, uh, the, you know, being part, which would be less about the money and more about the sort of intellectual exclusivity. Or for somebody else, uh, you know, I, I use, when I talk about this in the States, I talk about bl- bl- joining the U.S. Marines, who, who ought to be the least glamorous branch of the military and are actually 
the most glamorous. Or the Air Force gives them some run for their money, but but you know, but they 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 because they really play to that you know the few, the proud, and it's it's scarcity. But it's not scarcity as luxury. It's scarcity as a different kind of exclusivity. Well, yes, so I would say that it has to, so it's not necessarily something that's literally available to all, because if you think, you know, so in the 1930s when it's the Great Depression, there are all these glamorous movies about very rich people and, you know, who, who all are wearing gowns and furs and tuxedos all the time and, you know, Fred Astaire who flies from London to, can't remember someplace in Italy, you know, in, in, in like 30 seconds and, you know, just on a whim. And, you know, this is the audience watching that movie couldn't actually have it. But it entertains the idea that you could or that sometime in the future perhaps you could. And so you, it, there is this this sort of slippery element of seeing yourself in the other in, 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 in the glamorous image. Yes. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Are yeah, you no, calling up people? I'm sorry. That's fine. Shall we take um, this lady here, and then we have another question here. Hi, I'm Francesca Camel. I'm a Buddhist monk in training, um, believe it or not, so I'm leaving behind the sort of material side of it. I really like that slide about the dress, and I sort of definitely after this lecture, I have such a cognitive dissonance about the idea, right? I'm so idea that this is marketing, this is manipulation. Yeah, why are we still so susceptible to it? That's my question. It's, it's, we're so aware in this age that this is all being designed and manufactured right. and it's all the symptom, but why, why does it work still? Right. Well, I think, and actually toward the end of my book, I talk about what I call wise-up glamour, which is sort of like when we know that we're being manipulated, but, you know, and how do you, how do you, do, how do you wink at it? But, um, well, I think it's... It's because it, it does speak to, you know, when we find something glamorous, it's because it speaks to something deep in us. It's not, it's not just, you know, it's, it's not material. You know, it may be selling you something material. I mean, that may be the, the purpose of, you know, the person who tried to design it. But when it works, it's because somehow we see ourselves, the self we wish we were in that thing. And as I say, it is like a stage ma- magic trick. I mean, if you thought that the man was really sawing a woman in half, you would be very upset. You sort of, you sort of know it's 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 a trick, um, but you really enjoy it. So, so part of it is you enjoy, and and there's this very complex discussion in my book about this, but you you enjoy anticipating the the thing. You know, if I had this dress, you know. It, it's it's not really about owning the dress, it's about thinking about owning the dress, and then you know, and and sometimes you then buy the dress and you love the dress, and you know, and it, and I used to um, for for three years I taught a, a short seminar on glamour in a, a program in New York uh, that was a, a a branding program, actually a one year's master's program in, in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York, and one of the assignments I would have is. The students had different choices of things they could write about, and one of them was basically to write about one of these cases where they had imagined, 
you know, owning something, and you know, there were different readings that we had, and and then bought it, and then what happened? And I thought they would all be stories of dissolution, but, and they never were. <laughs> they were all well, you know, it wasn't exactly, but but it's like I love this thing. Now maybe I mean that's. A, not everybody chose to write about that, so maybe that's some sort of selection bias. But, but I think it's because you know, we we are both material and you know immaterial or intellectual or emotional beings, and um, we invest these things with those deeper meanings. Thank you. So there was a question here, and we'll take another question afterward. Hi, um, my name is Natalie Labelle. I'm a master's student at the LSC Gender Institute. And um, one of the things that I found really interesting about your slides is that it, to me it seemed that it was quite a focus on what I would consider like white glamour. So I'm just wondering mm. if race is something that you considered in your research, and if it was something that you considered, um, whether or not there was like major, not even major differences, or just differences between different groups, not even based yeah, on race. Yeah, right, right. So that's a really great question. Um, and first of all, yes, there are differences between different groups, not just racial groups. You know, they're different ages, they're different, just, you know, Star Trek fans, that's not everybody, you know, obviously. Uh, people who, you know, identify with, the, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, that's not everybody, that sort of thing. Um, in the book, there is more discussion, it's not broken out, but it's, you know, it woven through the book, of African Americans. No, it's not. I know I don't do like every race on earth, but but I actually think um, there was actually some controversy um, in the 1950s around Ebony Magazine. Uh, this is one of the discussions. Um, there was a critique of Ebony that it was not showing the true black experience in the 1950s in America, which was terrible, basically, um, but that it was showing too much about, you know, sort of social, the social elites or celebrities, um, and yet it was very inspiring. And I sort of come down on the side of Ebony, saying, like, this critique was completely correct in terms of, a, uh, it's a famous sociologist named um, E. Franklin Foster. Uh, that's not the right last name. Fraser, E. e. Franklin Fraser wrote a, a book in 1957 about the, about, called The Black Bourgeoisie. Um, and he made this critique of these publications, and he was... Absolutely correct. I mean, about the illusion. It was an illusion. But those publications were incredibly powerful and positive and meaningful to African Americans uh, because they showed a world that was not white supremacy, where, you know, black people were doing important things, where they were beautiful, where they had beautiful clothes, beautiful homes. And, and so that was kind of a... a you know, a form of glamour. Now, a lot of that glamour that is, you know, was celebrities or, you know, luxury or, you know, it was very similar to what white people in that period would have also been looking at. But part of it was creating that black world that, you know, was like a in-your-face to white supremacy. So, um, so I do talk about that sort of thing to some degree. Um, I don't do, when I started out to do this book, and this book took a long time to do, when I started out to do this book, I had, you know, grand ambitions. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do Bollywood, I'm going to go around the world, I'm going to know about, like, every kind of glamour and, you know, 
I really don't have a hundred years to to do the book. Uh, so I do, you know, I do, I have, uh, the way the book is organized is it has uh, sort of theoretical chapters that are sort of like what I talked about in this speech, and, and it has some historical chapters at the end. But then each chapter also has two what I call icons, where I take one thing that is glamorous, so not a glamorous person, but a glamour, something um, that's an archetype. So the first chapter, I talk about the aviator as a glamorous archetype in the early 20th century. And there's a little bit of race in that, too, because I have the, the Tuskegee Airmen who were actually photographed by the same photographer who did the cover photo of my book. Um, and I talk about smoking. Well, one of, one of the icons is about Shanghai, which I find a fascinating uh, example of glamour because it had... It, there's at least three very distinctive kinds of glamour in Shanghai. One was the way the West in the early 20th century, like in the 20s and 30s, saw Shanghai. A very different version was the way other people in China saw it. What did it represent, which was this idea of modernity and even things like the nuclear family. And then today it has a different meaning, and it's this kind of, you know, China on the move, the future. Um, so I try to do some of that, but there's a lot more. Some you know, people could do a lot more with it. People who have a deep. It's hard, it's very hard to write about glamour, about things that are not you. I mean, I try to do it, and it's it's even harder when it's historical. You know, what was glamorous in the ancient Greeks? It's like, and if they're not novels and diaries, it's really hard. Um, but I think, you know, I do think it, like humor is a universal phenomenon, but it does, like humor, take different forms. And some of those forms are, you know, cultural, whether it's, you know, within a homogeneous culture or within subcultures within, within a broader one. Yeah. All right. So we had a question here. Hi, Virginia. I'm uh, John Wilkes. I'm uh, a businessman and merchant banker currently investing in the primary healthcare uh-huh. sector. And my question to you is, can you put lipstick on a pig and make it sound, seem glamorous? Can you put lipstick on a pig and make it seem glamorous? Make, oh, oh, just it. I, that was, I didn't, well, I, I think... Um, there are limits. It's not, you know, it, it, it's a kind of magic, but it's not a perfect magic. So there has to be enough truth to it for it to sustain it. So, yes, clearly, I mean, people do, um, you know, uh, you know, people, people build, you know, I was like, I'm going to show my own biases, but, you know, I live in California. We have these incredibly glamorous images of these high-speed rail lines going to cross the state of California. And those incredibly glamorous images leave out the fact that you can't get anything built in San Francisco and, and, and it's going to cost like a gazillion dollars more than they say. You know, all these things. But people look at it and they think, wow, I want to get out of the traffic. And it's not even about the traffic in the cities. It's about, you know, going between, it's across the state. So sometimes... You know, there's a lot obscured that's important. And, and what I always say to people is, I, I don't think glamour is good or bad. I think it's just a thing. It can be used for good purposes. It can be used for very evil purposes. I mean, a lot of people join, you know, Islamic State because they find it glamorous. 
And then there's the other thing, which is it can just hide things that are important. And if you're going to act on it, you've got to think about what those things are. Okay. I, what was behind my question is, because I'm investing in the healthcare sector, mm. primary healthcare, that means GPs and things like that, it's a good business, yeah. it's good right. purpose. But I don't see it made glamorous elsewhere. I'm wondering whether you've seen that somewhere else. You know, yeah. Where should I be looking to make it feel lifestyle? Yeah, better? so healthcare... It, you know, when I was doing this seminar, I used to ask, we used to have an exercise where we tried to figure out like what is impossible to make glamorous. You know, there's like certain things you you know because I would tell the students, glamorous. You know, you're branding students. You're going to go out and try to sell people things. My interests are you know more general. It's not just about literal commerce, but you know. But branding, but glamour is only one tool in the toolbox, and it's not always the one you should use. And what can't you make glamorous? And a lot of, you know, we would brainstorm and come up with different things. And, and a lot of things around healthcare came into that category of things you can't make. Because healthcare is sort of about, you know, solving problems and it's about being sick or, you know, and, and that's very not glamorous. Um, that said, the, the actual punchline to my book, the very last thing in the book before you get to the index, it was, it was in the acknowledgments, is about how I owe my life to glamour. And uh, because I got the contract and a week later I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it turned out to be a much more serious case than it initially appeared. It was this HER2-positive breast cancer. It was quite invasive. It, um, and I, I'm completely fine now. I'm officially cured. My oncologist actually uses the C word. He says, if you have breast cancer again, it won't be this breast cancer. It'll be a different one. Um, and that is because of the drug Herceptin. And how did Herceptin get funded, the basic research for it. I mean, Genentech, you know, did fund. It was in, it was this total Hollywood story. So there was an NBC executive named Brandon Tartikoff who died of uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think. I can't remember. But he died of it, obviously, not obviously. But he didn't die of breast cancer. He died of a different kind of cancer. And his widow went to his oncologist and said, I want to help you with your research. What do you want to do? And he had this idea of creating, you know, this this very targeted biologic. Uh, and she, uh, she, she met, you know, Ron Perlman, the head of Revlon at Spaga, which is a very Hollywood restaurant. And she said, "Hey, you sell makeup to women. You guys should fund breast cancer." And during the '90s, they had all these fire and ice balls named after that that famous makeup thing. And raised all this money, and it was all and 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 it was all funded. The basic research for this drug, which is like the second most miraculous cancer drug ever. The first most miraculous is Gleevec, and this is and it, I mean it's um, and it was all done through this kind of glamour. But it wasn't you know like being treated for cancer is very not glamorous. But but the idea of creating a drug that would actually make a difference and you know having and and you know and, and breast cancer is sort of become weirdly glamorous as a cause as opposed to another cause that I'm interested in which is kidney disease which is very unglamorous nobody you know nobody cares about kidney disease unfortunately um, so so I think that's it's this kind of weird association but I think 
you know, people want problem solving when it comes to health care, and it's not necessarily uh, about glamour. It's, 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 about, it's more practical and down to earth. It's the kind of thing I thought I would write my next book about, which is like the unglamorous side of life. But it's very weird that I wrote a book about glamour because I'm actually interested in all the hidden stuff in the world. Okay, um, so we have a question here and then another question in the back. Oh, and we've got one over here, too. Oh, she gets sorry. hidden behind oh, the podium. Sorry. Okay, so we'll put you on the queue. <laughs> um, hi, my name is uh, Michal. I'm a um, philosophy master's student. Um, and my question is, is glamour good? Is it a good thing? Um, I mean, I think there are two things that are quite worrying about glamour. One is the, the manipulation um, I think if you if you go and buy the, the dress, it won't make you happy. It won't truly make you happy. It won't make your life perf- as perfect as you think it would. And neither will the shoes or the tiara or whatever. And and secondly, since you yourself you yourself has, have defined glamour as a, a means to an end, um, whether whether glamour is, is a, a good or a, a bad thing depends on why people employ. Glamour. Right, right, yeah. And, um, I mean, you, you've suggested that it can be employed for very um, bad reasons yeah, by yeah. mentioning ISIS. I mean, I think the worst example is probably um, Adolf Hitler and, and the Nazis. I mean, they, they presented a very glamorous picture of what Germany will be like. Yeah. So might we be better right. off without glamour? Right, right. So, so, yes, so I don't think that glamour is a good thing or bad thing of itself, as I said. I, I think it's just a thing. It, it, it can be used for good purposes, bad purposes, neutral purposes. Um, it, it leaves things out. It has this element of illusion. And by the way, it's not always manipulation. Sometimes glamour like humor is spontaneous. People find glamour in things that were not intended to be glamorous. Um, actually, my career was based on one of those things. I you know, I read a book that was supposed to be sort of an expose of, uh, it was a memoir, but it was kind of trying to show the, you know, the pettiness of the New York intellectual life. And, and I read it and I thought, wow, that would be a great life. <laughs> I would really like to do that. And, and, and aside from the fact that it was completely missing the point, um, it also, I like forgot that I hated New York and that I don't like cocktail parties and all these things that were, you know, that were part of this. But, and, and I sort of, it, it did have this shaping element on my career. So, um, but, but, and that was spontaneous. That was not manipula- manipulation. That was just, you know, me. Um, so, if it is not being used for an evil purpose, the trick is to think about what is left out. And, and sort of, if you want to say, you know, partly this book is just an intellectual exploration, trying to understand a phenomenon, but if you, you want to think about, like, how is this useful to your life, partly it's to remind you of those things. When you have this feeling and you enjoy it and it gives you pleasure, you know, what, what are you forgetting about? Um, so that, that's one element. Now, on the Nazis, and sort of, when I started out, writing this. I thought I would write about the Nazis. But then I decided, the more I thought about it, I decided that the Nazis didn't exactly employ glamour. 
They employed spectacle. And this is one of these like small distinctions, like the difference between luxury and glamour. So glamour, it creates this sense of identification. And it, it, it treats the audience as, um, as, as agents. You know, people who are, you don't get lost in glamour. You're still yourself. You see a different, better self. Spectacle uh, is this sort of overwhelming thing. It's and 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 there are lots of great forms of you know fireworks or you know stage shows that are spectacle. And but it creates a sense of awe. It's more like the sublime. It 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 overwhelms us with power. And when it's used by state actors, it is used generally not in democracies. It's usually used uh, traditionally. It, it, the traditional societies, it was sort of it took this form of what was called magnificence, you know, to show how great the prince was by you know how many jewels he had and all these things. And when it was used in the 20th century, it was used by these dictatorships and is still used, like for example, in North Korea, this sort of overwhelming display of power that awes the subject. So I ended up not writing about Nazis. Um, I, I think actually, fascist Italy is. A little more was a little more into glamour, and, and Mussolini used to be very big into the Aviator. There's actually a book, Mussolini Aviator. Um, uh, but the, the, and you can find iconography in Nazi Germany, also in in the Soviet Union. Um, that is glamorous, but I would put more of their stuff onto this idea of spectacle, where it's more about overwhelming you. It's a subtle distinction. (laughs) Oh, yes, and ISIS. I think they are, like, appealing to this kind of glamour. And I've written about that, not in the book, because it's more recent, but I've written some articles about that, because I think they do, they, they've joined some really ancient forms of glamour, martial glamour, religious glamour, to a kind of very contemporary, you know, you can be like in, the, you know, an action movie and a video game in this very potent and very disturbing mix. Okay. Um, so we have a question here, and then you. Sorry for <laughs> missing out. Hello, my name's Christina Lemieux, and I work in advertising, <laughs> so I'm familiar with glamour, um, and I definitely believe in the power of glamour, less so because of advertising, but more because it's definitely... Um, given form and focus to my life. I grew up in a tiny lobster fishing village in Maine, but dreamed of a different, better, more glamorous life, and it, and it helped get me here. My question has to do with probably the, the word glamour, and if you have any insight into whether you think people today, English-speaking, or at least use the word glamour in its English form, if people have a a true or a skewed sense of the word glamour. And I, the reason I ask that is because I have a sense that in the UK at least, it's become a little bit more associated with sparkly and yeah. tacky or glamour models. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes and no. And that's why I always start out by talking about things that are glamorous. Because when you think, when people start to talk about glamorous, 
it makes it easier to separate it from that because yes i think that's i think that is true in it's different in the us and the us glamour has i thought when i started this i thought that people thought glamour meant the movies or fashion it turns out they only think it means fashion <laughs> in the US and then here but there is this kind of use of it with sparkles also and um uh, in the UK, there is this notion of the glamour model, which is a kind of euphemism um, that developed because you couldn't use other words, um, and and that has put a this sort of different spin. And then I read stories out of English language stories out of India, and it means something slightly different that I don't quite understand. The word. I mean, I sort of get it, but not quite. Um, so the word, you know, I'm trying to describe a phenomenon, um, and the word is not the thing, and I'm also trying to re-enrich the word. So, so the word started out, as I said, it started out as a Scottish word for a form of magic spell. Then it became, over the, the course of the 19th century, metaphorical. When it started to be used in the way we use it today, it had a much richer range of uses. So one of the very common uses of the term in the sort of mid to late 19th century, up until uh, World War I particularly, was to talk about the glamour of battle. And there was this idea of military glamour. Um, and warfare is actually being glamorous, and you know, and, and, and being a soldier has been glamorous occupation because you have camaraderie and courage and patriotic significance, and you know, it's, it's important, and you're, you know, it's a noble calling. And then when the First World War came, and people experienced, you know, they went off to World War One with this glamorous vision of warfare, and oops, you know, left things important things out. Uh, then in the 20s, you see a lot of writing about we need to take the glamour off of war so that, you know, we, and sort of pacifism is glamorous, but people use it in this negative sense. And that's this richer sense of the idea of glamour. And I think we have lost some of that. And sort of partly I'm, partly I'm trying to bring back the word, although I'm really trying to describe this broader phenomenon, which we could call X. Okay, so we have, yes, another question here, please. Thanks very much. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if this is going to be a quick or a, short, or a longer Take time. <laughs> you waited a long time. <laughs> uh, so y you said three features uh, for glamour: um, grace, uh, sure. mystery, and um, the the the. the uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and if if I didn't know you talked about glamour, I would just think beauty. So, mm -hmm. is there anything that's different between the yeah. two? Yeah. So, so being beautiful is one thing that people find glamorous, and of course, I you know show lots of beautiful pictures. But there are many forms of beauty, um, and well, there are two things. First of all, not all beauty is glamour. I mean, the idea of being beautiful is glamorous, but um, for example, I haven't really looked at the newsstands that carefully, but I would say most of the cover models, you know, the photos of celebrities on covers of American fashion magazines are not really, today, are not really glamorous. They're, they're beautiful, um, and so maybe you know, the idea of being beautiful is a glamorous idea, but they're too friendly. They're too open. There's this sort of 
you know, girl next door quality or this, this sort of, I'm going to be your girlfriend. You know, it's sort of that, that kind of idea. And that's not really glamour. It doesn't have that sort of distance. And then the other aspect is there are more forms of glamour than beauty. So glamorous images are often very beautiful images, but, um, you know, the idea of being an aviator, I mean, they might be handsome or, you know, pretty, but, but it's not really about beauty. It's about, you know, soaring uh, over, you know, the mundane world. It's about conquering technology and being courageous and all of these kinds of ideas. So there's forms of glamour that aren't about beauty, and there are forms of beauty that aren't glamorous necessarily, but we can still say, you know, that's beautiful. And, and, and if we take it outside of individuals and beauty, uh, going back to the idea about spectacle, you know, there are awe-inspiring landscapes, for example, that are not glamorous. They overwhelm us. We're, you know, like, wow. It's, it's, it's this idea of the sublime, but it's not about projecting yourself into, you know, sort of a different world. Okay, I think we'll take perhaps, uh, the, I, there's two, was there a hand here and here? Maybe we can take, uh, and three, okay. Can we take the three of them together so you can address them? I'm okay. just aware. Yeah. Sure, Okay. Yeah. Yes, please. So, um, the gentleman here, please. Uh, thank you. Um, Terry Raby, I'm a retired risk manager, and um, my connection with this event is um, through my wife, actually, who's uh, setting up a website for mature ladies, to encourage them to uh, continue to look glamorous, in fact, even though they are, you know, older. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, that was my reason for being here. But my question, um, I was really um, intrigued by the um, universality of this, whereas before I thought it was by women for women. Right. Like, but that seems not to be the case at all. Um, but I was wondering... Um, because people do think that's what it is, whether you have problems with, um, you know, yes. feminists, I suppose. Oh, with feminists, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so, so I'll, I'll okay. I have to take three questions or address this. Okay, so we have um, the gentleman here, and then, yes, please, yeah. Thank you. Terence Bendixson, University of Southampton. It is often said that art is... Um, no, sorry, beauty um, is in the eye of the beholder. Um, is it a reasonable proposition that glamour is in the eye of the manufacturer? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> my, name's, uh, my name is Benedict Kohler. I'm a retired economist. And I've always been interested in glamour because of what it might mean for economics, and the reason is this. Does glamour open our eyes to new products, and does it thereby initiate a new business cycle? Okay. All right, so I'm going to take these out. Of, I'm going to do yours last, but I'm going to do yours first, which is, so, you know, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is glamour in the eye of the manufacturer? And the short answer is no. <laughs> glamour is, the manufacturer can try to create glamour. But whether, and people definitely do, but whether it works depends on the audience. Uh, so in that way, it's, it's subjective the way beauty is, is subjective. Now, you can take my book, and I tell you, you know, it has to have these elements, and if you know your audience, maybe you can manufacture it. But it's, it's very much like humor in that way, that, 
you know, there I live in Los Angeles. There are a lot of people in Los Angeles who are in the business of trying to manufacture humor. And some of them are very successful out of them, and some of them are complete failures. And, you know, it depends on the audience. So that's, um, it, it is a very subjective thing, even though I think we can pull apart and understand elements of it in the same way that we can with beauty. So then the question about, so the first question I want to address to an unanswered, an unasked question and then the asked question. So I think this, there is this, Desire for ladies of a certain age. You can define that how you will, but you know I would include myself. Uh, I think there is there is a sort of yearning for models of glamour, and I don't even know that it's just women. I think people we we t- you know because growing old is not fun and it has negative aspects to it. You know. It's hard to think of it as glamorous that you would want to be, but we have we do have a desire to see models of, you know, sort of I mean, people are living longer and longer, and that's great. And we would like to see, you know, models of being older that are inspiring. And so I think that that is an element on the feminist, you know, feminist. So I haven't had I've had problems with feminists, but not on this. Particularly, and but feminist is such a big term. I mean, there's so many different kinds of feminism, and glamour has been very important, actually, in certain forms of feminism, particularly in the early 20th century uh, and late, in the late 19th and early 20th century, where uh, you know feminism succeeded. There were you know there were intellectuals who had ideas that were very carefully worked out and you know would appeal to other intellectuals. But why did feminism become sort of a mass phenomenon? Why did people buy into the idea of being a modern woman is a good thing? And I think it's because there were glamorous versions of that. And maybe the, you know, the intellectual feminist wouldn't have necessarily been totally comfortable with those versions. But it was tremendously important to you know, selling the mass of women and men on the idea that this would be like a good world to live in where you know, women had these, these, these new roles and these sort of new, new types. And there was, in some cases, you know, there were, it's like anything else, there were certain hidden aspects to it. You know, you could have your cake and eat it too. You could, you know, you could, you know, you could have all the traditional home virtues and also all of the public things. And, you know, some of the difficulties and the things that we still tr- struggle with were, were obscured in that. But I think there was sort of a feminine um, element to it. So then on the economics, I have a whole speech about glamour and innovation, which is kind of getting at to what, what you talk about. And, um, and, and it starts with the idea of innovation is a glamorous concept. You know, nowadays it hasn't always been. It used to be kind of a negative word. I mean, going way back to you know, like the 18th century was not necessarily a good word. Um, but there are certain innovations that are glamorous, and there are certain innovations that may be equally important that are not. So, you know, container shipping is not a glamorous innovation. Maybe Herceptin is not. You know, sort of healthcare innovations may not be glamorous. Um, but glamour is also a way of, you know, a form of innovation. And people are also inspired 
to try to pursue new things by kind of glamorous ideas of what it would be to be an on, you know the idea of an entrepreneur or or the idea. Um, I have a friend uh, named John Nye who's. Uh, He's actually an economic historian, but he wrote a paper uh, some quite a few years ago, maybe 20 years ago, called, called I don't know if this is the whole title, but it's Lucky Fools is the important phrase. And the argument is basically, if you look at the chances of any enterprise succeeding, they're terrible. And that the people, that basically the economy runs on delusion. Uh, that, that, you know, that, that fortunately people wildly overestimate their success, their chances of success. They have this sort of glamorous, I mean, he doesn't use the word glamour, but he, they have this sort of delusory uh, image of, you know, themselves as the successful entrepreneur. And some of those people succeed, and they're the lucky, all of these people are fools, but they're the lucky ones. So that, that's sort of one element. And then I have, in my book, I have um, a sort of extended discussion of Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments tells the story of the son of a poor man who, uh, you know, God in his anger has visited with discontent. So the guy doesn't want to, you know, he thinks his life would be better if he had servants and he had luxuries. And so he, and then he would rest tranquil and, you know, have an easy life. So he struggles all his life to achieve the state that he envisioned, even though he could have been tranquil by not struggling. And, um, and sort of this is like a crazy thing. It's he's chasing after this glamorous image of, of tranquility when he could have just had it by being content. But that this is what runs the world. This is what makes the progress of society. That's sort of the sort of Adam Smith's take on a take on glamour. Yeah, and I suppose um, Lauren Berlant or others call it today cruel optimism. <laughs> you know, the, the kind of production of these right, right. unachievable fantasies. Right. Um, I think we're on the dot. On this note, um, I'd like you uh, to um, join me in thanking uh, Virginia for a fascinating talk. <laughs>